0: Today's reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 4, and it can be found on page 964 in the Pew Bibles. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. That on the day of our Lord Jesus will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia. And have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit and our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Be God. Good morning, good people. How are you all today? Hey, the roof is done. Did you guys see that? So that is fantastic. I, I park in the garage, and I walked out of the garage this morning. And I, All the scaffolding was gone. The construction equipment was gone. All nice new tiles. So beautiful. So I'm, I'm happy about that. I hope we're all happy about that. So that's fantastic. Just in time, too, for the uh, kids' camp uh, coming up this week, which Taylor announced. And I was talking with Taylor about the kids' camp on Friday, and uh, she mentioned that she had a few open spots still, uh, was needing some volunteers, and she was asking me if I would step in and help. And then at that moment, Peter walked in, her husband, and I said, well, ask Peter, he's your husband. And she said, yeah, but he has a real job. That's what she said. <laughs> so she is getting fired, uh, as she mentioned uh, earlier today. I think that's like the sixth time I've tried to fire her. But in any case, uh, excited for the uh, kids camp this week. And uh, and for those who are helping, thank you so much, and do be praying uh, for the Lord to work uh, really in that as well. All right. So as I was, I was uh, in my study on Friday and I was finishing up my my sermon for the week, uh, when I heard about uh, the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, and the ruling wasn't a surprise, of course, since with the leak we've all known that it was coming, but the timing was a A bit of a surprise. And I'm not on social media anymore, but if you are on social media, you know that it's just blowing up right now. Everyone left, right, and center is talking about the ruling. And I've actually been wanting to dedicate a sermon or two or three or whatever it would take to issues surrounding sexuality and abortion and gender uh, because I know that those issues are are particular pressure points in, in our culture today, particularly here in Oak Park, but just really across the larger uh, Western world landscape. So I was thinking I was going to do that later uh, this year, but the Supreme Court justices did not take into account my preaching calendar. They didn't ask me before they uh, made their announcement. And so um, I w- was talking with Pastor Johnny and Christy and John, And uh, they encouraged me to address the topic in a full sermon, which, of course, was easy for them to say since they didn't have to come up with a sermon on 2 p.m. on Friday uh, afternoon. But the more that I thought and prayed about it, uh, I decided that I agreed with them. And I had written much of my sermon I felt like I could take and kind of commandeer into something that would be useful for this topic, so I didn't have to start completely from scratch, and I and I felt like uh, the Lord has a word for us here on that. So let me just say a word at the front end of this sermon that this is not going to be a pro-life versus pro-choice sermon. I know that some of some of you uh, perhaps uh, are, are sorting that out. You're trying to figure out what what that means, and and maybe you're. Even new to Christianity, or perhaps you're younger in the faith, or just younger in age, and so you have questions about this. But I'm not going to not going to try to tackle pro life versus pro choice uh, today. I'm going to start it uh, as an axiomatic starting point with where we're at as a church. We as a church have always embraced uh, the pro life position, kind of irrespective of what that means for politics and how we engage politically. Our our view. Uh, on the abortion question has always been a pro-life position. So I'm going to take that as the starting point today. And the sanctity of human life from conception onward, this is in our doctrinal statement. We just revised our doctrinal statement not too long ago, and it was in there previously. We've, we've continued to put that in our doctrinal statement. And that's not just Calvary's idiosyncratic view all right, this is the view of broader evangelicalism, and not just even broader evangelicalism, it's the Christian view historically and globally. In Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, churches coming out of the Magisterial Reformation, in Protestantism, the global Anglicanism, from its very beginning, Christianity, the entire Christian tradition, has held to the sanctity of life in the womb. You can go back and you can read it in the Church Fathers as early as the earliest Christian writings uh, in like 70 AD. So it's not as though abortion only showed up on, on the world stage in 1960s. Abortion has been around for as long as humans have been around. You can go back into Egyptian papyri from 1550 BC, and you can find abortion referenced there. Plato references it. He's a philosopher from the 5th century uh, B.C. You can see it all throughout the Greco-Roman world in the first centuries of this millennium. And so Christianity has always had to interact with the subject of abortion. And from the very beginning of the church, it has always held to the sacredness of life from conception in the womb. So this is not a new issue or a new idea for Christianity. In fact, in the entire history of Christianity, it's only been within the last 50 years or so that some elements of Protestant Christianity and predominantly white, wealthy, first world cultures have begun to shift on this issue. Which, as an aside, I think that should cause progressive-minded, pro-choice Christians to wonder why their Christianized position on abortion only seems to be finding resonance in primarily white wealthy first world cultures. That's another sermon. For this morning, I'm going to assume the pro-life position as the true and correct Christian position. And I'm going to assume largely that we all agree with it because I think that we all mostly do agree with it. I know there are some that, that don't, but, but mostly I think the majority of us do agree with it. But even though nearly all of us agree with the pro-life position, Not all of us here at Calvary are responding to the Supreme Court ruling in the same way. Some of us here at Calvary want to shoot off confetti cannons in celebration about the ruling. And others of us feel a good deal of apprehension and concern. And I've talked with folks even just since Friday from both camps. And some are like, are you going to mention it on Sunday? And some are like, are you going to mention it on Sunday? You know, and so like there's both perspectives represented here at Calvary, right? And I think I think generally we're pretty centrist as a church, so I don't think there's huge distance between most of us, but we do have different perspectives on cultural issues, and both of those are coming to the fore here on this question. And I, those of us who do want to shoot off the confetti cannons may be tempted to look with judgment on those who don't want to. And those who don't want to shoot off the confetti cannons may be tempted to look with judgment on those who do. The burden of this sermon is to help all of us on the pro-life side understand why, though we all may agree theologically with the pro-life position, we're not receiving the news of the Supreme Court ruling the same way. Because if we don't understand why we are responding differently to the news, I fear we may lose sight of the fact that we're all on the same team. And that would be a loss for our relationships with each other and also a loss, I think, largely for the pro-life cause itself. Now, as per my usual... I have Calvary first and foremost in mind with this sermon. I think what I'm going to say has application to the broader evangelical community, but that's not who I'm preaching to. My comments and my assessments of where we're at and what our proclivities are are very specific to what I know and experience Calvary to be. Now, if you're not a pro-lifer this morning, you don't hold the pro-life position, and I know that there are some here today, whether Christian or non-Christian, I encourage you to listen in any way because after all, you got up and you came to church and you're here and where else are you going to go? So my prayer though for you is that you will find the sermon helpful in giving you a holistic understanding of Christianity's historic stance on the uh, the pro-life position. Because if your understanding of Christianity's stance on pro-life is primarily shaped by the media, it's almost certain that you don't really understand Christianity's stance on the issue. Now, at some point, I am going to preach a pro-life sermon that engages with the logic of the pro-choice position. And that's an important sermon. And, and for those of you that are really wrestling through the issue, you do need that sermon. And I'm going to, at some point, get to that. So stay tuned for that. But I need more time than Friday afternoon to write that sermon. And I want to put it in the larger context of the sexuality questions that are so bedeviling uh, in our culture. So more modestly this morning, here's what I want to do. It's a two-part sermon. I'm going to take part of my original sermon, which was already largely written and had a whole section about believing the best in each other. And I'm going to use that as the pastoral setup for how we can think generously and constructively with each other about the pro-life abortion question. And then in the second half of my sermon, I'm going to make some comments that will focus specifically on abortion and the pro-life position, all right? Okay, so uh, picking up back into 2 Corinthians, because that's where I'd spent most of my time studying this week, we're going to circle back to the text that Pastor Joel preached from last week uh, and that Sylvia read for us this morning, verses uh, 12 of chapter 1 through verse 4 of chapter 2. And as I noted Uh, at the start of our 2 Corinthians sermon series, one of Paul's primary reasons for writing to the Corinthians was to defend his apostleship. The Corinthians had developed an unbalanced theology of glory. They had this idea that sharing in Christ meant only sharing in his victories, only sharing in his glory, so that as one became a follower of Christ, we would just follow him from glory to glory to glory to glory. And they had lost sight of the fact that sharing in Christ means sharing not only in Christ's victories, but it also means sharing in Christ's cross. And so Paul takes pen in hand to remind the Corinthians that the truest mark of apostleship is not simply sharing in Christ's glory, but sharing in Christ's afflictions. It was important for Paul to say because so much of his apostolic ministry was all about suffering and affliction. And the Corinthians saw all of his suffering and affliction and said, well, he must not be really that good of an apostle because look at all the batterings and beatings he's taking. So Paul tries to straighten them out from this theology of glory that they have. But there was another matter, what might seem like a more mundane matter, that was complicating Paul's relationship with the Corinthians he had kept saying that he was going to visit them and then not following through. So right here in the second half of chapter one and the first few verses of chapter two, Paul is addressing the fact that he hasn't followed through on the fact that he said he was going to visit them and then didn't visit them. Because what's happening now is that the Corinthians are beginning to suspect that Paul not only isn't that grave an apostle because he's getting beaten all the time, but he's not quite grave an apostle because he's not following through on his commitments. So this passage of scripture that we read, it's maybe hard to see it. Uh, it's it's hard to see it on a quick reading because we're we're picking up a correspondence between Paul and the Corinthians, and both of them know that this is an issue, but it's not being said as explicitly as it might be for us if we were coming in as an outsider. So we kind of kind of like cobble together some things from the context from the end of 1 Corinthians to see that this is what Paul's concern is. But mainly, I think, in this part of, of, of what we just read, Paul is, is working to address the fact that he hasn't followed through on his pledge to come visit them. He makes this more explicit in verses 15 through 17. And in verse 16, Paul says that he had intended to visit the Corinthians on his way to Macedonia, and then again on his way back from Macedonia. Hence the double blessing or this uh, double experience of grace, as our translation reads. Paul was out doing his missionary journeys, and he was going to pass through Corinth and then on up to Macedonia, do some work in Macedonia, and then on his way back to Judea, he was going to come back down through Corinth, spend more time in Corinth, and then head to Judea. So he was going to give them extra attention, they felt like. But he hadn't followed through on that. Now, changing your plans once, that's one thing, because you know things come up. And... But this was especially bothering the Corinthians because this was the second time that Paul said that he was going to visit them and hadn't visited them. And we can flip back into 1 Corinthians 16.5, and it gets a little complicated trying to put the timeline together. Well, we can see that there he had said that he was going to come visit them and spend a considerable amount of time with them, but he hadn't followed through on that one either. So here's uh, yet another change of plans that has caused the Corinthians, who are already doubting Paul, to doubt him even further. In verse 17, Paul poses a question that, Reveals where the Corinthians are in their attitude towards Paul. They think he's an unreliable vacillator. So Paul writes, Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Meaning visit you. Paul asks, Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? The Corinthians, already pl- prone to be suspicious of Paul, are reading his two unfulfilled promises through a hermeneutic of suspicion as they <laughs> taught us to say in seminary. And they're doubting his commitment to them. If Paul really loved them and cared about them, then he would have come. But he hasn't come, which is just more evidence that he really isn't that all great of an apostle anyway. And they can't imagine a good reason for why he hasn't come to visit them. And then they're filling in the gaps of what they can't imagine with negative reasons for why he hasn't come to visit them. And isn't that what we so often do in all areas of life that leads to all sorts of conflicts? We read each other through a hermeneutic of suspicion. We don't quite know the reason why that person did that, but we assume the worst reason for why that person did that. We have all sorts of reasons that justify our own actions, It all makes sense to us in our minds why we do the things that we do. And there's always legitimate reasons for it. But we can't even begin to imagine a legitimate reason for why that person did that action that we didn't think was a wise or good action. And that's what's happening with the Corinthians towards Paul. They're assuming the worst about him. And it's so hard not to second guess each other and think the worst of each other. And this happens all the time in all aspects of life. It happens with matters of race with matters of gender, in marriage, in parenting, with friends, at work, and so on. It can happen on the abortion issue, even amongst pro-lifers. We assume that our perspective is the only perspective, and when folks don't behave like we would behave, we ascribe the worst possible motives to them. So one side thinks all those confetti-canon pro-lifers have no regard for the complexity of abortion, and they have been co-opted by the hard-right Republican agenda, and I bet they even celebrated with the cap- when the Capitol was stormed. Bah! A pock on them. We don't need them. I'm not going to associate with them. And then on the other side, all those... Folks might say this, all those hand-wringing pro-lifers who aren't celebrating, I bet they aren't celebrating because they don't really care about unborn babies. They're just cultural cowards trying to keep their head down because they're afraid to stand up for the truth. Bah, a pock on them. We don't need them either. And when those of us on one side assume the worst on the other side, the other side can sense it. And then they respond with suspicion of their own. And then when we sense their suspicion of our suspicion, which confirms our initial suspicion, we treat them with even more suspicion. And then our increased suspicion of them confirms their suspicion of us and further increases their suspicion, and so on and so on it goes until we're all trapped in a vicious loop of doubt and suspicion, hence the hermeneutic of suspicion. And when we get into that loop, someone needs to be the big person and step outside of the loop and refuse to read negative motives into the other person, to give each other as much as possible the benefit of the doubt. And that's what Paul is doing here in this passage. The Corinthians have lost confidence in him, they've lost confidence in his love for them, and they're thinking negatively of him and they're attributing negative motives to him. And it would have been so natural and easy for him to get defensive and to lose confidence of them in return. But instead, he affirms his love for them, and he assures them that he knows that they truly love him too. Now I'm not going to try to explain all of Paul's reasoning about why he hasn't come to visit. Maybe we'll pick that up in another week. But instead, I wanted you to note in this section of text how Paul is working hard to break the loop of this hermeneutic of suspicion. Look at verse 14 in chapter 1. He says, On that day our Lord Jesus will boast of us and we will boast of you. He's saying in the day of Jesus, at the end, we're going to boast in each other. We're on the same team. You're going to boast in us and we're going to boast in you. And then look in verse 24. He reminds them that he works for their joy and he acknowledges that they stand firm in the faith. In other words, don't doubt me. I'm working for your joy. I'm not doubting you. I know you stand firm in the faith. Then look at 2.3. He says, For I felt sure of all of you. I'm sure of you. I, I, I believe in you. I'm sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. And then at the end of verse 4, he affirms his abundant love for the Corinthians. Whatever you think about why I haven't come, just know that I I, I love you abundantly. So all throughout this section, Paul is refusing to get sucked into this hermeneutic of suspicion. He's not going to let their fear and doubt about him get in the way of his extending love to them and believing the best in them. Nor is he, as much as possible within his power, going to let their fear and doubt about him get in their own way. Of receiving and returning his love. He's insisting on their mutual love and confidence in each other. Whatever needs to be resolved about why our did or did not come, Paul is saying, he wants to pick up the stick of the issue with a posture of mutual love, not mutual doubt and suspicion. I think this is just a great framework for navigating all potential disagreements in the Christian life, really all of life in general. That This very much, I think, can be so useful in marriage. Sometimes when Jill and I have gotten into a, a protracted conflict or a disagreement, or we can't see things the same way, and it's not getting better, one of us has needed to take a step back and break the hermeneutic of suspicion by saying, hey, listen, let's hold on. I love you. You love me. We love each other. All right? let right, let's, let's re-engage on this issue from remembering that, from that perspective, all right? Because if we, we can give all the explanations and all the reasons that we want to give, but if we don't love and trust each other, and we don't believe the best in each other, then we're not going to be able to hear each other's explanations. And that's true for every issue in life. It's helpful for processing all sorts of potential disagreements. Disagreements about why apostles are changing their travel plans and why we respond the way we do to Supreme Court rulings. We need to reject a hermeneutic of suspicion towards each other and instead embrace a hermeneutic of love. The fact is that all of us pro-life folks are on the same team. And even if we are picking up the same stick from different ends, we all want the same outcome. But if we aren't willing to believe the best in each other, we're not really going to be able to hear each other. And we're going to start wrestling over the stick and potentially break it. Is it possible But some pro-life evangelicals have a legitimate cause for concern and apprehension about the Supreme Court's ruling. And is it possible that other pro-life evangelicals have a legitimate cause for celebration? Is it possible that there is a legitimate cause for both celebration and concern at the same time? And more to the point, is it possible we can all learn to hear each other in a way that will better serve the overall pro-life cause. I think there is. So that's the first half of the sermon. Let me uh, transition us now to the second half of the sermon. I want to say a few things here about why I think there are, there's a reason to celebrate and why I think there's a reason for concern that helps us get in the head, hopefully, of each other. So why is there a legitimate cause for celebration? First off, simply because it's the right moral decision. As Christians, we should be grateful that our country has abolished a federal law that stood in direct opposition to the dignity of human life and that sanctioned the destruction of the image of God. Children are most fundamentally a blessing from the Lord the national legalization of abortion stood in direct opposition to that fundamental truth. When John the Baptist, still in the womb, leapt for joy in the presence of Jesus, still in the womb, would aborting either one of them have just been another instance of my body, my choice? Through precious lives, in the womb, that could receive and even worship in the womb. God help us, what does it say of a culture that has stopped seeing unborn children as gifts from God, as little people made in the image of God? Nothing good, I assure you. There should be something in us that resonates with Friday's ruling something that makes us say, yes, this is a just and sane and humane ruling. The new ruling doesn't solve everything, of course. Every state will make its own choices about abortion, and our state is firmly committed to the pro-choice position, so nothing much immediately will be changing for us but our country is better for having at the very least stepped back from a national law that sanctioned the destruction of unborn children and i think that's a cause for celebration and we should be grateful to the lord for it so why might there then be legitimate causes for concern i think there could be a number and i don't want to try to channel everyone's causes of concern so i pick just what I think might be the primary one. I think the primary one is that many pro-life folks keep at the forefront of their minds the dual plight of the abortion issue. The plight of the unborn baby and the plight of the pregnant woman. In the vast sweep of human history, there are two classes of people who have been consistently and tragically marginalized. Marginalized women and children. And that historic distress manifests itself again in the abortion issue. When it comes to abortion, both the baby and the woman are in distress. No woman makes the choice for abortion in a cavalier or offhanded way. The choice to abort is almost always made from a position of distress. And that calls for us to be gracious and compassionate to the distress that leads to the choice for abortion, and it adds complexity to the abortion issue. Sometimes conservative pro-lifers compare abortion to slavery. But the abortion issue is more complex than the slavery issue. With slavery, in the relationship between the slave master and the slave, there was only one person in distress, the slave. When slavery was outlawed, Christians were not morally obligated as a matter of their faith to care for the poor disenfranchised slave owners. Oh, the poor slave master, who's going to tend their fields now? Let's take up a collection on Sunday morning and send it down south to all the plantation owners. There was no moral obligation in Christianity to care for the injustice against the slave owner because there was no injustice against the slave owner. The injustice was only in one direction. But with abortion, there are two people in distress, the unborn baby and the pregnant woman. And Christians are morally obligated to care for pregnant women in distress. Outlawing abortion doesn't in and of itself alleviate the distress of the pregnant woman. In fact, it can, quite frankly, complicate her distress. American pro-life politics have prioritized care for the unborn baby, often in strident and aggressive ways that have shown little regard for the distressed woman. Pro-choice politics have prioritized care for the pregnant woman in ways that have shown little regard for the distressed child. But Christians are called to care for both with equal fervor and love, because how can we care for unborn babies if we're not caring for their mothers? The baby and the mother are literally one flesh. And once the baby is born, the baby's life depends upon the integrity of the mother's life. Our care for unborn babies is our care for their distressed mothers, and our care for distressed mothers is our care for their unborn babies. This is a single concern. The overturning of Roe is a win for unborn babies, to be sure, but many pro-life evangelicals fear that if we all just clap our hands and shoot off our confetti cannons and say, hooray, problem solved, we will be neglecting our ongoing duty and care for distressed women. Even if all abortions were one day outlawed, which I just don't think is ever going to happen here in America, but even if that were to happen one day, as long as the plight of pregnant women in distress continues, the church's work continues on as well. And that, I think, is what makes evangelicals nervous about too quickly shooting off the confetti cannons. All right, now let me make some concluding thoughts and try to bring this all together. There's more to say on this issue, obviously, and I haven't said all that needs to be said. And even when I try to say more on this issue, I probably even then won't say all that needs to be said. It's a huge issue. But the primary point I want to make this morning before we talk any more about this issue is to remind us all as a pro-life church that both pro-life perspectives that are represented here at Calvary are true and are necessary. Paul's point to the Corinthians is that we need to give each other the benefit of the doubt and to believe the best in each other. Not every pro-lifer who wants to shoot off the confetti cannons has forgotten the plight of pregnant women. And not every pro-lifer who is hesitant to celebrate is soft on abortion or just caving to cultural pressure. It doesn't do for the confetti cannon pro-lifers to doubt the pro-life commitment of concerned pro-lifers and it doesn't do for concerned pro-lifers to doubt the pro-women commitment of confetti canon pro-lifers we all need each other and we all need each other we all need to listen to each other and believe the best in each other because confetti canon pro-life christians help us remember that unborn human life has dignity that unborn children are worthy of protection and that the recent ruling is a reason to celebrate And concerned pro-life Christians help us remember that we need to care for pregnant women in distress just as much as we care for unborn babies in distress, and that even with the recent ruling, more work remains to be done. And we both need each other because we both need each other. We need to interpret each other through a hermeneutic of love rather than a hermeneutic of suspicion. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, I know some of you are not pro-life. You don't hold to that position. Maybe you're, you're, you're trying to figure it out, and you're, you're waffling on it, or you're uncertain. And I know that it will be important for me to provide as much clarity as I can about why Christianity has always been pro-life. Christianity's stance on pro-life is not a response to the Republican platform agenda so what is the logic of our pro-life stance? I, I think we should be pro-life, and I would want all of us to be pro-life, and we'll talk about that uh, as graciously and uh, as uh, believing the best in each other as we can with that conversation too. But for this morning, let's all believe the best in each other as pro-lifers and remember that we love each other, and most importantly, remember that we love God together because he has first loved us. We're going to close by singing the doxology. I was talking with Pastor Greg on Saturday, and I was saying, what kind of song do we sing for a closing song after a sermon like this? There's not a lot of songs that are written that are suited for this kind of a a sermon. And I said, let's just sing the doxology. Let's just point ourselves to God and praise to God to remember that what unifies us is God. And as we move towards God from different perspectives and different angles. Let's believe the best in each other, but let's believe that we're all moving towards our worship and adoration of the Lord. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Father, thank you that you've given us Jesus who is the great unifying north star that holds us all together. Thank you for the diversity within the body from the different perspectives that we bring. As we we would become just myopic and uh, narrow-minded, and and lose sight of the whole truth, if we only listen to ourselves or our own people who thought like us. So thank you for the diversity within the church, and uh, thank you for the ways that you uh, bring us together. I thank you for the diversity here within Calvary, Lord. Not every church is positioned like we are to to live together uh, from both perspectives towards the common cause of Christ. And I pray that you would uh, help us to benefit most fully from that. We pray this in your son's name.